God, thank you for your word and your freedom to gather to worship you. We ask you to lift up Pastor Gavin as he preaches and give him the words to say. Open our hearts and ears to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Um, so um, Shelby introduced me through prayer, but I'm, I'm a Pastor Gavin, um, and uh, I'm the family pastor here. It's an honor to go into the Word with you. Um, I have a beautiful wife. Uh, we just celebrated our anniversary up at Lake Tahoe. Um, I've got two boys. They're crazy. Like, that's what they're supposed to do. That's what they are. So they're crazy. Um, and um, we're going to go into this text this morning. We're going to be um, jumping into Acts 21 through 23, um, and we are um, going to be talking about resolve. Uh, and resolve is something that appeals to all of us because when someone sets their mind and says, I'm going to press forward to this goal no matter what, I'm going to get this done, I'm going to be resolved towards this, um, those are the stories that we like to go and look at and see um, what they did and sometimes more importantly, why they did what they did. Um, and that goes towards everything in life. It can be small. Um, like if my two-year-old wants to play with me and I'm ignoring him or he thinks I'm ignoring him, he grabs me and just starts dragging me or pushing me um, until I come and look at the rock he found. Like he is resolved to show me this rock. That's what he's gonna do. Um, or um, it could be about love. Um, me and my wife just saw a play by Shakespeare and they, they're in this country that they have forbidden relationships between men and women so that they can study. And this one guy falls in love. And when they ask him what his reason is, he says, is there any beauty we can behold in the book that you can't see in a woman's eye? Men, keep that one. It's Shakespeare. You're welcome. So, <laughs> so that is something that appeals to us where we see why someone pushes forward and carries on in the face of anything. And this applies to whether it's somebody going after a degree, a career, holding on to a relationship in the good and the bad. Uh, we are attracted to when people are resolved towards something. And that's what we're looking at this morning is Paul, an apostle, a missionary, I don't even know what that is. It's probably a beard hair has gone wild. So, I'll watch those things. Um, Paul is a minister of the gospel, and in this text, he's going to get arrested for the sake of the gospel. And he knows it. And we get to ask the question, what would cause a man to be resolved to go into certain imprisonment? And we're going to see in this text, it's because he is resolved for Christ, and specifically we're going to see he is resolved for Christ because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, and because of Jesus' own resolve. And so that's what we're going to look at in this text. Now, we're going to start in chapter 21, uh, verse 8. And while you're turning there looking for that verse, uh, I'm going to let you know that uh, we're doing a big section of Scripture and that scripture is a lot like uh, Rancho San Rafael Park in the fall. Um, it's beautiful, and there's trees from all over the world there, and you can walk through that park and see, you know, there's a tree that's orange, and, and there's a tree that, that is just this brilliant red, and, um, you know, it's from all places in the world. So there's a tree with pink polka-dotted leaves, and, and, like, you can just go through and just be in awe of every single leaf that's there, every tree that's there, but sometimes it, it does you a lot of good to just back up 
drive by and look at all of the trees together and the picture that they, they put together. And it's the same way with the Bible, that sometimes it's good to go tree by tree, verse by verse, um, and look at the beauty that each individual one has. And we're going to do a lot of that in the book of Romans um, because it's a very meticulous letter. Um, but other times, it's good to step back and look at the perspective as a whole. And that's what we're going to do today because the arrest and trials of Paul dominate the remainder of the book of Acts. And by backing up and looking at the big picture of it, we can get a lot of really cool things from the text. So we're going to jump in. We're in verse 8. Before this, um, there is, uh, he's traveling to Jerusalem. That's what's happening in the first seven verses of this chapter. So now, pick it up in verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So Paul is traveling to Jerusalem, and, and uh, along the way, he stops off at a house, and uh, it mentions Philip. Philip is one of the first leaders of the church, um, and actually went to a, a whole different nation, preached the gospel, and, and a, a church, a large church, started all at once. He has four young prophetess stars. They hear the Lord. They, they love Jesus. They're probably in their teens or their early 20s. And we know also that Luke is with him because it says, we entreated him. So Luke, the person who wrote Acts and Luke, and then the prophet Agabus, who we're going to talk about in a second, and Paul, and probably some others. And so these are, for the first century church, some heavy hitting names. And then Agabus shows up and he says, thus says the Lord, um, like an old school prophet. Um, now, it's important for us to know that he's not a crackpot. Um, so not a crackpot guy, earlier in the book of Acts, he predicted from Jesus a famine that was about to hit before it happened. And he got, he got the churches to start raising money for Jerusalem before the famine hit. So when the famine finally started, all these churches already had money ready and sent it to Jerusalem. And they're like, what's going on? They're like, it's for the famine. And the Jewish leaders were like, this was, it started three days ago. And they're like, we know, we've known for a year, we've been raising money for this because God warned us through this guy, Agabus. And so he has a track record of hearing from God. Um, and he um, comes with this message that you are going to be arrested and you are going to be arrested in Jerusalem. But then in verse 13, you see Paul answered, where are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul receives this, and, and the text affirms it's from God, but he is still going to go to Jerusalem. And we have to talk about what's going on here, 
because what's happening is God is giving accurate information of what's going to happen to God's people and to Paul. And in our day and age, we have skepticism of personally hearing a communication from God for, for one of two reasons. One is you grew up in the church um, and you are used to crackpots pretending to be prophets, um, saying that they heard from God, but in reality, they're just trying to profit off of people's wealth and to gain status for themselves, or they're just kind of crazy. Um, you know, I've, I've, that could be somebody that's saying, the end times is in 2013, no 15, no 17. You know what? The end times are going to happen after I die, and uh, you can't criticize me anymore. Or um, <laughs> it, it could be... Um, somebody coming up to, to a pastor and saying, God told me that your church needs to buy me a Lexus. Um, I went to that church. That actually happened. Um, and so we, we have this distaste in our mouth when somebody says, well, I'm a prophet, or I, I hear from God. The other one might be because you're not a Christian, you're skeptical that God would communicate at all with people. Um, and to address the, the second one first, I would point out that people who aren't Christians have a hard time hearing, well, God will communicate with you, but they are okay with saying, well, I got this cool dream that came true when I, when I was on acid. Um, I, I turned right when I should have turned left for some reason, and then a car blew through the intersection, and if I hadn't turned right in that moment, I would have died. That even skeptics have an easy time saying, yeah, there's something out there that, that can potentially communicate with you. <clears throat> Instead of being aimless, I would suggest that anything that, that leads to you building a relationship with Jesus is from Jesus communicating to you because he wants to save you. And, and so I, I would ask you to keep an open mind about that. And second, for Christians, we have to remember that the God of the Bible that is revealed one of the first things we learn about him is that he communicates. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And a couple verses later, it said, and God said, let there be light. So we have a God who communicates to us. And that final revelation of that is in Jesus Christ, his son, who is called the word of God. And so we have a God who communicates with us. And we see in this text, whether you believed or not, that the Holy Spirit then still continues to communicate with his people and relay information. And we, and we see how that works in this text. So first we see that there's nothing here that Agabus is saying that is wrong. It's not against scripture. He's not coming to Paul and saying, thus says the Lord, start a cult. Uh, and Paul's like, okay. Um, he's communicating if you, this is what is going to happen with a track record of being right in the past because he heard from God. And we're going to see in a moment a track record of it coming true because it is from the Lord. But it doesn't supersede scripture because scripture is where we see the lengths that God has saved us, how he created us, how we sinned. Um, we broke relationship with God and each other. And then through human history, he redeemed us with Jesus coming to earth as a man dying for our sins and then starting the church where we continue to talk about the salvation of God. So this direct revelation doesn't supersede scripture, but with wisdom, it, it is helping to guide the church and give them information. But notice that they're both wrong, kind of. The, the word that Agabus delivers is right. And he puts a lot of energy into it. I don't know if you've ever tried to tie yourself up but it's hard. 
And so he takes this guy's belt and he's like, I'm going to tie myself up. And I can't imagine Luke being like, hey, you want some help? No, I'm good, man. I got to do this. I got to tie myself up because God gave me this word. And he's like, okay, Agabus. Um, so he's tying himself up with this belt. And he says, this is how you are going to be delivered over. But Luke and everybody else interprets this through their lens of, well, why would God call you to suffer? Clearly, this is a warning that you should walk away from this. And you're saying you want to go to Jerusalem and Rome. Um, let's just start a GoFundMe page. We'll get you there. Um, you don't have to go and get yourself arrested. But Paul, on the other hand, is like, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there, which is also not true. So they're receiving accurate information from God of what God is going to do. And to be honest with you, no one seems to have a clear picture why God did this because that's not communicated in the text. But we do know that Paul's not in disobedience because Paul has previously received a direct command from Jesus on what to do. And so you see in Acts in 19, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Um, and then Last week we talked about this. Paul said, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. The word used here is bound by the Spirit. It's as if he's communicating, I'm already in chains. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only that I may finish my course and in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so he's received this as a message. And so he knows with everybody coming to him saying, you're going to get arrested in Jerusalem. He's saying back, I know, but this is what Jesus has called me to do. And in verse 14, these, these men and women, they, they aren't special Christians, but they are uh, our examples as we look at the book of Acts. In verse 14, they say, Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And so this shows us, as a final note, from hearing from God, um, praying and receiving knowledge about his will, etc. First, to know that sometimes God would call you to do something that doesn't jive well with your understanding of what God would call you to do. Um, one time I was young and I thought I was supposed to date this girl. Uh, and then she broke my heart because that's what girls do. Uh, and, and uh, here's the thing. Did God tell me to do that? I, I would say, I don't know, but it doesn't necessarily automatically say that he didn't just because it didn't go well. Because Paul's about to be arrested. He's about to be arrested and put in jail for four years. And no one's going to get saved in the text. And, and so that can happen to us when it's like, I thought I was supposed to date this girl or this guy. I thought I was supposed to apply for this job and I fell on my face. What's going on, God? And, and it's remembering that we are called to follow Jesus. And he, he does not lie. But sometimes the results of what God is trying to do in our situation doesn't look like what we think it would. And, and we've been susceptible to this idea that God would only tell us to do what would help us. Uh, we see this in our own understanding of, of being an American, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why would Jesus call us to do anything outside of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or I was at a store, and they had all those really 
those wood signs with sayings on them and, and you're like, oh, that's cute. And I'm like, these are just examples of things telling me what to do to be saved. And there's 2,000 of them and I feel condemned and I'm gonna go get a frozen yogurt. Uh, but the, um, one of them was just be brave and then a Bible verse. And I, I, was kinda, I kinda rubbed my temples and said, yeah, but that was in the context of God telling this person to wage brutal warfare for 40 years. So to, to reduce it down to be brave and it's just going to go good for you misses the fact that oftentimes God calls us to do things that are hard. And second, in verse 14, that they hold it with an open hand. This, this is a word from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit, but it's not scripture. And they trust that God is still in control. And so when Paul won't listen to them, they're not destroyed. And they say, let the will of the Lord be done because we trust God. And so in those times where we go to do something for God and it doesn't go well and, and we're scratching our heads, it gives us an opportunity to say, yes, but the, may the will of the Lord be done. This doesn't destroy my faith. Maybe I have a bad piece of cheese. Maybe God is doing something that I don't know about and I'll find out about later. Uh, but I'm not gonna let this get me down because Christ has saved me. But this stands to question the Spirit came and told Paul, yo, you're going to get arrested. What is going on? And what causes him to be able to go into a situation where he's not only going to be arrested, he thinks he's going to be killed? And the answer is, is that he knows Jesus. He's resolved for Christ because he knows Jesus. He says in the book of Philippians that he wrote around this time, I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So at this point, Paul's been a Christian for 20 plus years, and he's seen God move in his life time and time again, and he's been able to spend time in the Bible and know Jesus more and more and more to the point where he now says that everything else that I was doing to try to earn God's favor before I knew Jesus, my Lord, I count as rubbish. Um, that's actually the word dung. He's saying, I count everything I did to try to earn God's favor before I knew Jesus as the Lockwood landfill on a hot summer day. Uh, when you just go outside to take a nice breezy breath of fresh air um, and not step in anything. Uh, he says that that is the worth of all of his works and trials before he knew Jesus. To the point now that he wants to know what it's like to be like Jesus more. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and his sufferings. Not because I'm trying to earn his salvation anymore. Right before it, he says, Jesus bought my righteousness through faith. But knowing Jesus then built a resolve in him that he would pursue Jesus and become more like him as he looked at Jesus. That's why there's an old, there's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim um, in the light of his glory and grace. That when you behold Jesus, it builds that resolve. And so I think what Paul would say to us here is, don't try to be a mega Christian. Don't try to go impress Jesus. 
But on the other hand, look at him, spend time with him, know him, and then don't be surprised if more and more you're willing to resolve yourself for the gospel so that you would know Jesus even more because of his beauty. So he was resolved for Christ because he knows who Jesus is. He's also resolved for Christ because of what Jesus has done. So let's look, we're going to jump around a little bit now, um, but take a look at Acts chapter 21, verse 37. So we just read this. What happens in between is that he finally goes to Jerusalem. It's not like they arrest him right at the city doors. Uh, he goes to the elders. They celebrate that God is saving people. And then they say, hey, Paul, listen, there's a lot of Christians here that used to be um, uh, Jews. Or they are Jews, but they're not. They trust that Jesus is Savior. And they've heard this rumor that you are calling them away from devotion to God through the practices that, that they are used to. Because here, we, we view Christianity through the lens of history, where there's Judaism and Christianity. But back then, these Jewish Christians are like, we are Jews, but we are also Christians. Jesus was the promised king. We're saved by him. But we are opting to continue some of our former practices of devotion because they're fully lived out in Jesus now. And they thought that Paul was going around and spreading rumor. The rumor was spreading that Paul said, stop being Jewish and uh, don't do this anymore. And James and the other elders know this is going to offend the Jewish Christians. So they ask Paul to go and engage in a purification rite to show that he is still a Jewish person who uh, loves the law of Moses. But it backfires because some, some Jews that were against him before are there. They see a Gentile that Paul would hang out with. They assume that he went into the temple, which is forbidden, uh, and they drag Paul out to kill him. Then the Romans show up, and they're like, cool, guys. Um, the cops are here. Let's stop beating them up. And they, the Roman guy doesn't know what's going on. He assumes that Paul is this terrorist that they've been looking for, and that's where we pick up in the story. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, this is verse 37, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And so he thinks he's this terrorist. Then he speaks in Greek and he said, I didn't think that this terrorist knew how to speak Greek. And Paul says, you're correct. I am not this uh, terrorist. If, if you are going to be a terrorist that leads a sect into the wilderness, the Assassins is a great name. Um, so just an idea for you. Don't be a terrorist. Uh, but... But then Paul raises his hands, and after he spoke in Greek to, uh, Greek to calm the Romans down, he now speaks in Hebrew and shows them, oh no, I'm not abandoning my heritage. And he gives a speech. And here Paul does um, one of two things. The first thing he does is he goes and tells them the story of how Jesus met him. Um, Christians have called that a testimony before, or a story, or, but it's, it's the story of how Jesus saved Paul, and it's the story that Shelby read. But in that, he shows the, these Jewish people who he could have 
just talked about the law with. He could have uh, opted out and said, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm not even gonna do this. But he turned around and he shared the story of how Jesus saved him and how he was a devout Jew who followed the law and had the best teachers and was getting so into his faith that he started killing Christians, um, that he was that committed to it. And then all of a sudden one day Jesus met him and his life changed forever. Um, and, And honestly, through the sovereignty of God and his spirit, our lives as Christians have changed forever as well um, because Jesus met this man. Um, and it's a powerful story and it reminds us sometimes the best thing you can do is turn to your story. Um, Martin Luther, I think, is the one who said, remember to your baptism whenever you're washing your face in the morning um, to remember how Christ has saved you. For your own self, it's important because it recalls to your mind the greatness of the God who reached down to love you. But it's also sometimes the best thing to tell other people. That you would say, I don't really know the Bible very well, or you know, I don't have this real zinger, or uh, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not crazy like that person has a broken arm, and I guess I could go pray for them to be healed, but in case Jesus doesn't show up, I'm going to look crazy. And sometimes the best thing for you to do is, hey, look at how Jesus saved me. This is how I met Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Um, He pairs it with a second thing, which is a historical understanding of who Jesus is in the gospel. So after he shares his testimony, you may have remembered from the story, he said, uh, God said to Paul, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles in chapter 22, verse 21. And we see in that the, the change of heart that Paul even had, that he as this nationalistic Jewish person Uh, was given a heart for peoples that weren't his own. Um, But at the same time that he would even turn around and share his testimony to people who were trying to kill him. Um, And he's going to get another opportunity to do it. They try to kill him again. The Romans pick him up and bring him to jail. So even though he's going to jail, they're actually saving his life. The guy goes to whip him. It's not legal to whip a Roman citizen, which he finds out he is. So they stop. Uh, but the Roman at this point is just flat out confused at what is going on. And, and so it says in verse 30 of chapter 22, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. <clears throat> Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know that he was the high priest. For it's written, (laughs) you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Um, Paul might have lied. If he did, the Bible did not lie. It accurately reported that he lied. I don't know what happened, but it's funny. Um, (laughs) So then in verse 6, he looks around the room and perceives that one part were Sadducees that don't believe in the resurrection, and the other is Pharisees who do believe in the resurrection. And he cries out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between, <clears throat> excuse me, 
between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And then a little bit further down, it says, when the dissension became violent, in verse 10, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. And so the drama here is that the Sanhedrin is, is known historically to get very violent with each other. Um, and, and you even see that, that they are just aggravated and the Roman actually thinks they're going to rip him to pieces. And so it would be as if, Somebody went to Congress for a trial, and half the room was Republicans, and half the room was Democrats, and uh, somebody stood up and said, brothers, I'm a Republican, and the, the, my dad was a Republican, and it is for the liberty of America that I stand trial here today, and watch what happens to a Congress at that point. That is the kind of feeling that happened here because their religion and their nationality was so tied together, so it's tense. But in this, you see he's smart in this passage. He's not making a profound point. He's getting out of Dodge. But the line that he says in verse six is a line that he's gonna start saying for the rest of his trials in the book of Acts is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. That ultimately our faith is rooted not just in the personal story of how Christ saved us, but in a historical Jesus who really rose from the dead and who really ascended to heaven, and who really is still alive. And, and you need that, because your, your story will tie you to the heart of God saving you, but the gospel will tie you to a defense of your faith, of that you are not just believing something weird, you believe in something real. You believe in a man who was witnessed by over 500 people who came back from the dead, and a, a death by crucifixion, no less that they were so willing to stand up for this man who rose from the dead that they died for him. And one of them was someone who murdered Christians to earn God's favor. And he turned around and said, I was wrong, Jesus is real. What causes you to do that? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. And what causes you to believe that you can cry out to Jesus for help now? It's because he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. And that when you look up to Jesus, he took on human flesh forever so that when we look up into the heavens, we see the Son of Man seated there, which means that we have a high priest that understands us, who suffered like we did without sin. It's a resolve that's birthed by knowing what Jesus has done. And we know what Jesus has done through our personal story and through the gospel. And it's important that we hold on to both, that we hold on to how God has saved us and how he continues to work in our lives, and we hold on to the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves, and that we bring it to others, that we're not trying to sell them on a bill of goods that we don't believe ourselves, that we believe in a God who rescued us, and we're telling people the greatness of that God and then showing them who he is in the Bible and historically. That's how you build resolve through knowing Jesus' works. So knowing Jesus, knowing his works, and then knowing how resolved Jesus is. Let's look at 23 verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now here's what happens next. In verse 12, when it was day, 
The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Then in verse 16, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take my nephew to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. In verse 18 it says, He took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. And then verse 19 it says, The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? You have to understand that the gesture of taking his hand was basically a seal of promise that he was going to rescue Paul before he even knew what was going on. Uh, And then he tells him about the plot. Uh, He gets together half of the army that's in Jerusalem, um, which I don't know if you guys know much about Jerusalem historically, but they they tend to not be a very peaceful uh, city ever. Uh, And so uh, he takes half of the military force that's there, and he sends Paul out to the governor uh, with a letter that is a little bit self-edifying. He's trying to save Paul, but he's also like, sir, I came into the temple, and this poor Roman citizen with Roman eagles tattooed all over his arms was being beaten up, and I rescued him. And I'm sending him to you so that he can be safe. So, you know, he's He's human. He's trying to get promoted. Um, but, but the important thing for you to see is in verse 11 uh, that Jesus is behind this. Amen. That you would get scared if you read this plot, but the problem is that Jesus ruins the beginning and ending in verse 11 and says, this is my idea. Uh, and, and indeed, all of salvific history, human history, where God is saving people is like the giant reveal at the end of the movie where Jesus just keeps popping out of the curtain and saying, it was me, it was me, it was me. Um, and he's the big reveal all the time. Um, and that's encouraging because, again, it roots us in, may the will of the Lord be done. But second, it shows that Jesus is more resolved to seeing us and other people saved than we ever could be, or even Paul could be. Yeah. That he was behind Paul being able to share the gospel to the Jews, and he's going to be behind Paul now as he goes and testifies the gospel to the Romans and to this, this whole foreign world. Jesus is the one who saves. He partners with us. We get to be his partners, his children that share the gospel. But he's the one who saves. In Philippians 3.12, we looked at the earlier part. Paul says, I have not already obtained this and I'm not already perfect. So one of the the most influential Christians in the history of the world, um, at this point, the most influential Christian in the history of the world says, and I'm not perfect. I haven't gotten this all the way down yet, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus saved Paul. If you're in Christ, Jesus saved you. He's saving you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, Jesus is your savior. You can turn to him and be saved. And when we go out and tell people that we believe in Jesus and we feel a little crazy as we're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why do you live the way that you live? Like you know, ignoring certain things that the rest of the world gets to enjoy. It's because I'm a Christian. Um, why, do you t- why are you so excited about this Jesus? Ah, because, because I'm a Christian. But in reality, there's a God behind you who wants to save. And as you share your story, he's there. Amen. And he's saving. Amen. And he's still saving. 
Like people get saved in this story. They get saved throughout human history. They're getting saved today. I got the opportunity to meet with somebody who he, he hasn't been to church for years, but he is getting baptized soon because Jesus met him where he was and saved him. And he's doing that story. We all have those stories. Those stories will continue to happen. And it builds our resolve to know that not only do we know what Jesus who wants to know us and who is beautiful, and not only does he work to save us, and has worked to save us through the cross, but he is still working to save and he is still active in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And and it's in centering our lives on him that we become resolved.